Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. It's great to be with you. It's an honor, um, yeah, among all these incredibly, um, you know, all the moving stories that are sitting over here in this section. To, to, to get to be up here and preach is, is an honor for me. Uh, yeah, my name is Caleb Scott. I'm a pastor in Chicago, a little Reformed church just on the north side of Chicago. And um, summer is already starting to feel like it's fleeting People in Chicago in August start to get nervous about the weather. They start freaking out, even though uh, August is gorgeous, but everyone's worried, and so we stop wearing sunscreen just so we can get burned, um, feel the last few days of the heat. Um, but it's a beautiful time in, in, in Chicago. I was thinking about that. I, I, I think the last time I was up on this stage during a service, I was saying, I do. It was, it was my wedding. So people are like, are you nervous today? I was like, no, nah, I'm not nervous today. Last time I was up here, I was getting married. Um, and that was like seven and a half years ago now. Um, and I think that's the last, you know, Pastor Rick married my wife and I, Sonia. And when I married Sonia, I uh, married into her family, kind of married into this church family by extension. And um, Carmel has become a home away from home for me. I have been um, in Carmel once or twice or maybe sometimes three times a year uh, for the last 11 years. And there's nowhere else on the planet that I can say that about in my entire life. And, um, and so it really has become kind of an unusually homey sort of place for me. Um, and that's like, I don't know, a silly list to think up in my head. But the other place, the second place on that list is Uganda, where I've been uh, nine years in a row now. I've been to Uganda once or twice each year, which is where our, our organization does most of its, most of its work. Um, it was in 2010 that my wife Sonia and I came back from our, we were, as our junior year of college, we came back from studying abroad in Uganda, and we asked a handful of you to gather together at Eric and Lori's house so that we could tell you a story. We have a picture of this first gathering that we had, um, and this is my wife and I in, in, their, in their family room um, telling the story and, and, and saying that we wanted to send six kids to school because there were six kids at this orphanage that weren't in school who were about to sort of be too old to like get back. The ship was going to pass them, and they weren't going to be able to go to school. So we wanted to send those six kids to school, and we wanted you to give us the money to do it. And it really, I mean, it literally was a gathering of people from, from, from this congregation um, and, and people from this group who were the first people on our board and... Um, and so, yeah, I have one other picture of that. And, um, you know, rather than, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. We had just come back from studying abroad our junior year in college, and we were telling you this story. And rather than saying to us, listen, kid, <laughs> come on, um, here's the whole list of reasons why this is unreasonable. Um, let me tell you how the world works. Instead of saying that, um, you said, yeah, let's do it. Let's change the story for those kids. And, um, and so that's, that, that was how our organization started. Um, and this next picture is um, then one more. The next one, this is, um, this is Sonia and Zula on our first trip to Uganda in 2010. And then the second one is Zula holding our daughter Maya um, just this past year. Maya's been to Uganda twice now already. And um, every time she 
we tell her we're going somewhere, she always asks, Uganda? Um, <laughs> she thinks that's where we're going. Um, yeah. It was some of you who said yes to that story. Let's change the story for those kids. And this week, those six kids are um, starting at university this week. Um, they got into some of the best universities in Uganda and are studying finance and law and business and design. And, um, and really, it's really incredible. Um, that's what missions does. Missions reminds us of a larger and truer story that we are a part of. Talking about missions in 2019 um, is a little bit more difficult than I think it used to be. A little bit more nuanced. Um, in 1910, the church held a missionary council in Edinburgh, Scotland. And it was a gathering, the biggest ecumenical gathering of people who were invested in the modern missionary movement. And they all gathered together to, to, to work together, to ask questions, to talk about what was going on globally in the missionary movement. The, 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 the modern missionary movement is pretty modern. Um, it was really in the 1800s that for the first time the church had a concerted, resourced, organized effort to send missionaries to the ends of the earth. Um, what we think of as missionaries today, yeah, didn't really exist in that form until kind of in the 1800s. And the assumption in 1910 and, and, and in the previous century was that Europe and North America had the gospel and the resources, and it was their, their command to just propagate the gospel, go into all the corners of the world and preach. Um, and, 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 and so, yeah, that was kind of the assumption. They held a centennial event in 2010 in Edinburgh. And um, who could have imagined how much the world would change, right? Think about how much the world had changed in that 100 years. And, uh, you know, part of what they could do at that event was, was celebrate. And you saw some of the things in the, in the video about how in sub-Saharan Africa, at the beginning of the 20th century, everyone thought it would be an entirely Muslim country. And, you know, as it said, there are more Christians now in Africa than any other continent. Um, Latin America and South America, a similar story with the gospel spreading. And parts of Asia where people thought the gospel would never be effective. Um, the gospel's just blowing up there. Um, it was undeniable that the, the center, the locus of Christianity had shifted from North America and Europe to the global south. That's where the theology was, is being done. That, I mean, um, it, it's incredible. And... Churches and denominations in the West, on the other hand, are in steep decline, free-falling. Churches in the global South can't hammer together benches fast enough for their people to sit on. And two weeks ago, Pastor Yi, um, your new pastor, I, I watched his sermon on YouTube, and he, he preached a sermon that I thought, this could be a Mission Sunday sermon. Uh, he talked about being on assignment for Christ, about, about each of us having our own mission, um, and it struck me that, you know, you, you probably don't preach that sermon 50 years ago, unless it's maybe Mission Sunday. But unless it's Mission Sunday, that's probably a sermon you don't hear. But the church in the United States today is acutely aware of the fact that mission can no longer be peripheral to our existence. If the church is going to survive and thrive, mission is going to need to be central to our identity. We have realized that we need to be the recipients of God's mission just as much as we need to be participants in it. So missionaries returning to their sending churches aren't only returning to be refreshed and drink from the well, but they return with the life-saving water that the church so desperately needs. 
Missions helps us to see the story that we are a part of. The text this morning is, uh, I want to preach from Mark chapter 10, 46 through 52. That's the text. It's the story of Bartimaeus. Um, It's a story that helps us get at a theme that's kind of been running through Mark that I want to look at. So we'll read from Mark 10, 46 through 52. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples in a large crowd, crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming, he began to shout and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many sternly ordered him to be quiet. But he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, So this story in Mark is the second half of a bookend that started several chapters earlier in Mark with another story about a blind man coming to Jesus from Bethsaida. Remember the one with the saliva where Jesus spits in the dirt, puts the mud on his eyes, and, 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 and helps him to see. So, so just preceding that, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and then Jesus feeds 4,000 people, and then Jesus and his disciples get into a boat, and Jesus must be a few yards away from the disciples, because there's an argument that the disciples are having in the front of the boat, and Jesus kind of peeks his head over and says, what, what, are, you guys, what are you guys arguing about? <laughs> Tell me it's not about whether we have any bread. And the disciples are quiet because that's precisely what they're arguing about. Someone didn't bring the bread. Jesus says, oh, he doesn't say this, but I imagine he says something to the effect of, you're kidding. (laughs) I just, I did the four and then the five, the thousands. And you're arguing, were you there? Um, And he says to them, he says this, he says, you have eyes, but you cannot see. You have ears, you cannot hear. And immediately Mark takes us on land and this blind man from Bethsaida comes up and Jesus restores his sight. And it begins this section in Mark that's all about the ability to see or not to see. And within this section, Jesus predicts his death three times. The first time he comes to the disciples and he says, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, then I'm going to be raised from the dead. And Peter takes him aside and he says, Jesus, let's roundtable this. Let's, let's, let's talk about whether this is actually how the story ought to go because we have some ideas that maybe you want to hear. And Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's what he says to him. Um, you are looking at the things from man's perspective and not from God's perspective. If anyone wants to follow me, Jesus continues, you'll have to take up not a sword but a cross. They keep moving along towards Jerusalem. In chapter 9, Jesus predicts his death a second time. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to be raised again on the third day. This time, they, they continue to walk. And the disciples start to get into an argument again. And Jesus says, what are you guys arguing about this time? And Mark says, uh, 
But they were silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus takes a little child and puts the child on his lap and says, this kid, this kid's the greatest. I'm not being facetious. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, be like this kid. Stop arguing about who's the greatest. They keep walking. Jesus predicts his death a third time. Listen, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. That's, that's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be crucified. And on th- the third day, I'm going to be raised again. And, and, and this time, James and John take Jesus aside. And they say, hey, that was great. That was great. Um, we'd like you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says, perfect. What do you want? <laughs> and, uh, and they say, we want to sit on your left and your right when you come into your glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You will be baptized with the baptism that I am about to receive. But as for who sits on my left and my right, I, that's up to the Father. The disciples make this clear for us. You can be following Jesus daily, walking in his footsteps, listening to his very words, watching his miracles, and still miss the kingdom of God. We come to Bartimaeus, and it highlights the irony in this section and in this story. And the irony is that the blind see Jesus so much more clearly than the disciples who are walking in his footsteps. Bartimaeus is coated in dust. His feet are cracked because it's hot and dry at the gate of Jericho. People are going in and out of this gate all day long. He's covered in dust. You can picture him. It's gross. He smells bad. He's poor. He's got a cup that he's shaking for coins at the gate, and that's his existence every day. He is a beggar, not because he is blind, but because of how people treated the blind. They viewed him as broken, likely blind because of some sin that he's committed, unclean spiritually and physically. Bartimaeus existed, but barely, only on the periphery of his society. But it is precisely because of his location on the margin, outside of the center of power, that he is able to see rightly who Jesus is and what Jesus is offering to the world and to people like Bartimaeus. And he calls out to Jesus asking for mercy. He's belligerent, this poor homeless man belligerently yelling, son of David, have mercy on me. Quiet, shut, come on. They sternly order him to be quiet, but he shouts all the louder, this man can't be controlled. Jesus stands still. Let's bring him to me. And they come to Bartimaeus and they say, he's he's asked for you. And Bartimaeus knows who Jesus is and so he throws off his cloak and he springs up into the air, which I imagine is dangerous for someone who can't see. But he throws caution to the wind and runs to Jesus and Jesus approaches him and asks him, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus that's kind, of, that's kind of his MO. That's kind of the question he asks. He doesn't, he doesn't often ask, what do you think or what do you believe or what do you know? He always asks, what do you want? What do you really want? Tell me what you want. That'll tell me more about you than if I ask you, what do you think? Tell me what you want. And Bartimaeus knows who he has as his audience. And so he doesn't ask for any coins. He asks for the big one. He says, teacher, I want to see again. I want to see again. And Jesus restores his sight to him. And Bartimaeus travels with Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
And the fact that we're given Bartimaeus' name probably suggests that he became a leader in the early church. We don't get too many names of people that Jesus heals. Bartimaeus is likely a known figure in the early church. And it's precisely because of his blindness, which the world perceives as weakness, which enables him to have faith and trust in Christ. It's his great need which gives him the courage and strength to shout out, even when others are telling him to be quiet. His weakness allows him to see something that the disciples repeatedly miss, something that is central to the mission of Jesus. They watch him, the disciples. They listen to him. They see the miracles. They, they, they know Jesus backwards and forwards. But they are so consumed with the world's story of how to gain influence and power that they repeatedly miss that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are a protest against that very story of power. Reminded me of this quote from Leslie Newbegin, a missiologist and theologian. He, he writes, When the church tries to embody the rule of God in the forms of earthly power, it may achieve that power, but it is no longer a sign of the kingdom. When the church tries to embody the rule of God in the forms of earthly power, it may achieve that power, but it is no longer a sign of the kingdom. Isn't that a quote for our time? The disciples want the kingdom. The disciples want the kingdom of Jesus to advance, to advance into Jerusalem. They want to sit on the throne with him, but they don't want that kingdom to be the kingdom of suffering, the kingdom of blind beggars and children, the kingdom symbolized by servanthood, the kingdom on the margins. They want it to be the kingdom of power and influence. The kingdom of authority where they sit enthroned next to Jesus. I need to go to Uganda twice a year to remember the story that I'm a part of. I need to be reminded of God's heart in a way that only a place like Uganda can remind me of. It's likely a different place for you. Somewhere outside of the center somewhere on the margin. Because when we exist at the center of power, it becomes so difficult to remember that the ultimate story, the story most fundamental to who we are as human beings is the one that Bartimaeus saw, that Jesus tried to get his disciples to see. The story most fundamental to who we are as human beings is the story of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of a crucified and suffering Lord. It doesn't look like the kingdom of the world. Alan was in sixth grade when he died. He was 12 years old. And on a trip to Uganda in 2018 that I took with um, Sonia's sister Sarah and her cousin Annika, we went to visit Alan's grave. It was a fairly unremarkable trip, but I will never forget it. Patrick and William, the kind of the co-directors of the orphanage that we work with, hadn't been to visit the grave since the burial, and they said it would be about a three-hour round-trip you know, visit, and I said it would be a good idea for us to go visit. Alan's parents died from AIDS, like many in his generation. He was brought to live with his grandma, but his grandma could barely take care of herself. and She was also sick, and so as much as she might have wanted to be wealthier or younger so that she could take care of Alan, she, she simply couldn't. And so she asked if Patrick and William would take Alan into the orphanage. And so that's where he grew up. 
Before we left for the gravesite, we picked up an elderly woman from the area where Alan was buried. She wore a tremendous, oversized, bright red dress called a Gomez, and she almost pulled me out of the car as I tried to help her into the back seat. And with one strong arm, she swooped down and grabbed her grandson and put him on her lap. I sat pressed against her for most of the ride. Alan was killed in an accident. He was mopping in the boys' home when an electrical socket came loose. Alan went to fix it. And when his, brother found, his brothers found him, he was dead. It was senseless. People tried to make sense of it, said it was God's will, as if that made things better somehow. All of their sense was offensive. Some things just don't make sense. The boys at the orphanage are afraid to plug things in. We rode for four hours until we finally slowed to a stop in front of a grove of mango trees. We stepped out of a car, and you can show that picture. We stepped out of the car and arched our backs. The old woman sat in the shade of a mango tree. Patrick William and I went over to Alan's graves. Two cement slabs engraved with names and dates stood beside a red patch, a red rectangle of dirt overgrown with grass and weeds. And Patrick told me that was where Alan was buried. I knelt down began to pull back weeds and pick the grass that had begun to cover the grave. It was all I could think to do. We spent a few minutes remembering him. William prayed, I prayed, and then we turned around and made the four-hour journey home. At some point on our ride home, I began to wonder whether this trip was worth one of our precious days in Uganda. Could have used our time better, could have used our money better. It's not even a great story. It was a full day of painful plodding along poor roads to kneel at a patch of dirt and offer 20 minutes of limp prayers. In what story does that trip make any sense? I asked Patrick that question, something to the effect of that, whether it was worth it, and he looked at me with an unusual seriousness and said, it mattered. It matters to honor Alan. It only makes sense to spend an entire day traveling to kneel at the side of a forgotten gravesite in a particular story. That trip only makes sense if you believe that you are a part of a particular story that does not measure time or worth or money the way that the world does. The story only makes sense if Alan's life has the same immeasurable worth as our children and grandchildren. To kneel on that patch of dirt was to honor the life of a child whose story might as well have gone untold, whose life might have been forgotten. In what story does it make sense to invest your money in places where there is no return? To build relationships with Muslims in Indonesia, Afghanistan, to invest in youth in Brazil and in India, to go into Baghdad, to learn the beauty of languages in Papua New Guinea? It doesn't. The world is dangerous. Stick to your own. Invest where there is certain return. Speak English. Peter says to Jesus, after Jesus predicts his death, surely this isn't the way the story goes. Surely laying down your life is not how this story goes. That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus pulls Peter aside and says to him, Peter, I'm rewriting the story. You're right. When you believe that you are a part of the world's story, this plan makes no sense. 
this death, this suffering, this serving, rather than being served, it makes no sense at all. But we are flipping the script, Peter. That is God's mission to the world. That is the most fundamental and true story. No matter what Herod or Pilate say, no matter what the headlines blare or your phone screens tell you every day, the ultimate story, the one that the disciples almost miss, is the story of a kingdom with no end, a kingdom where the blind see clearest, not only because they have their sight restored, but because it is from the margins, from weakness that you can see the clearest. It's the story where a child like Alan is celebrated and mourned and not forgotten. It's the story of a crucified Lord. And when you're a part of that story, you invest where there is only an eternal reward. You risk loving people that can't love you back. You throw off your cloak and you run. And you run not to the center where the power is. You run to the margins where Christ says he is. Your commitment to missions is a commitment to seeing the world through God's eyes. It's a commitment to a particular story that believes that the crucified and risen Christ is Lord. So keep saying yes. Keep saying yes when you are given a chance to participate in that story. When the college kids come home with some half-baked idea about changing the story of a few kids halfway around the world, keep saying yes. And ask yourselves this week, whether the ways in which you have ordered your life match the wonderful story that we are all invited to be a part of. Let's pray. Crucified and risen Christ, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear what you are up to in the world. And I pray that we would follow in your footsteps and that as we follow in your footsteps, we would also not miss the kingdom of God happening all around us, places where we might least expect it. Give us the courage to go to those places that are uncomfortable where you promise to be. I thank you for this church, for the legacy of supporting missions in this church, for the legacy of generosity in this church. I pray that it would continue. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.